This week, we take a look at some of the biggest shows, trends, and controversies in pop culture from the first part of 2017, from Handmaid's Tale to the ousting of Bill O'Reilly. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, thank you so much for joining me again on Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. So, we've already reached May after what seems to be a very long cold winter. A hundred days of the Trump presidency have come and gone. We've seen new shows, old favorites, films, trends, controversies, and everything in between. I thought it was high time to take stock of some of the most interesting pop cultural trends and happenings of this past season. And with me to do that, I have Constance Grady, a culture writer for Vox. There are so many things to cover, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Miss Grady. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's make it clear you are not the Ugly Betty character. <laughs> no, that is the character played by the great Octavia Spencer. Not a bad sort of twin to have as a name, though. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. So before we get into things in, in a little more depth, a few of the things, um, what sort of are the pop cultural trends or cultural trends that you have found interesting this first part of 2017 that you've identified? Mm, I think what's kind of fascinating coming into 2017 is how many uh, TV shows, prestige TV shows, we're seeing grappling with religion, which I think is a little bit unusual and really fun. There's uh, The Handmaid's Tale takes place in a theocratic dystopia, um, and it's all about exploring American Puritanism and how much that still lurks underneath all of those Enlightenment values. Um, and then there's American Gods, which is about how immigrants bring their gods to America and whether anyone can survive there. There's this line in the book about how this is not a country that is friendly to gods. Mm. Uh, and the way that that question is interacting with questions about American identity, which are on a lot of people's minds uh, after the election, um, is really, really fascinating to me. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch develop. Right. There's a few other ones, like The Leftovers, right? One mm -hmm. could say also sort of a, um, asking questions about what happens after. Do you have any theory as to why? Well, I think that there's a sort of growing question about the role of religion in American politics. For a very long time, American conservatism was organized around uh, religious morality. You know, that was the, the new coalition that Reagan put together in the 80s. Um, and you st that's still sort of present. Uh, Vice President Pence is very much uh, coming out of that, out of that tradition. Uh, but Trump is a very sort of aggressively secular figure. Mm -hmm. um, and yet he was still embraced in large part by this religious conservative base. So there's a question about uh, to what extent religious morality is fundamental to American conservatism and to what extent it's a mask and, and how um, American progressivism can interact with that. Because, I mean, this trend must, I mean, since it takes a while to make a show, it must have been something that started a bit farther away, sort of maybe around the election even, that these themes were coming up for the American public even before um, these first hundred days. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think part of the the 
reception of these shows is uh, has to do with what I've been calling the Trump filter, where it becomes almost impossible post-election to look at any piece of culture and not see it through that lens. Um, I remember shortly before the election going to see a production of The Winter's Tale, which mm-hmm. is not a super political play, um, but it does have this insane king in it. And I was sitting there in the audience like, oh, so this is what it's like when you're at the mercy of someone in control of the government who is not rational or sane and is making all of these unbalanced decisions, Um, which is not a reading of the play that had ever really occurred to me before, but I just couldn't see it any other way at that point. Right, right. No, it is hard. I I completely understand what you mean. You're sort of putting that filter on everything we're seeing now. And we're going to get back to this more sort of Handmaid's Tale and things like that. But you, you talked about the, it's been the first hundred days of, of the Trump administration has sort of come and gone. Is it besides religion? Are there other things you see that have happened in popular culture during these first hundred days? Uh, one thing I think is interesting is a lot of a lot of network television, which uh, sort of reacts more quickly because it's on a more compressed time frame, uh, has aggressively moved away from the idea of a spontaneous romantic gesture. Um, I think in a lot of ways, as a result of the um, of the infamous Access Hollywood tape of Trump uh, describing what sounded like a practice of sexual harassment. Um, right. I think on uh, Jane the Virgin, one of the characters says, I'd like to kiss you right now, but since Trump has ruined romance along with so much else, I'm going <laughs> to ask your permission first. Uh, and it's there's, I think the writers on that show talked about other times that they wanted to put in a spontaneous kiss and instead they had the character ask for permission just to make it very clear that everything that's happening is consensual. How interesting. So it's not it's not sort of irony. It's more a bit about fear to be misconstrued is what you're saying. Fear of being misconstrued and also I think a desire not to romanticize the idea of just grabbing someone without their permission first. Um, another thing I was reading when I was doing research is that, which has nothing to do with TV, but the nuclear bomb shelter business is apparently booming, which is oh, kind really? of scary. Yes. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Very scary. I, <laughs> uh, that's definitely also something I've been seeing in the book world. Um, for a long time, dis- we the dystopian market and the post-apocalyptic fiction market were sort of uh, saturated in the post-Hunger Games world. Everyone was like, okay, we've seen that story, but it's time to move on. Um, and then after the election, suddenly there's a lot of juice in that idea again. And there's a lot of post-apocalyptic fantasies that are suddenly very, very popular. Right. Is there any difference in those post-apocalyptic? I mean, the st- in, in terms of story, do they look different than they did in sort of Hunger Games? What is this plot? I mean, books move even more slowly than TV. So at this point, nothing's really being written um, that reacts specifically to the the question of Trump. Um, Most of the dystopias we're seeing are still coming out of the reaction to the post 9-11 world, which is sort of where the first wave of dystopias came from, of which Hunger Games was the crest. I don't mean first in history. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there have been dystopias before that. Uh, But the, the YA swell that was a big deal from the mid aughts up to the, the early teens. Right. Um, this is sort of, what we're seeing now is just sort of like the last remains of that swell with a new marketing push behind them. And they're very much like 
oh no, terrorism, oh no, the we're going to destroy the environment, you know, those mm-hmm. basic fears. Well, that's that's a very interesting and, and kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but changing a little, you were talking about um, sexual harassment and, and that type of thing. Um, one of the things that has happened is the ousting of Bill O'Reilly. All right, here we go. Uh, breaking news on CNN. Conservative media's biggest star and the face of Fox News is out. That's right. We now have an official statement from 21st Century Fox. I just want to read it to you in full. After a thorough and careful review of the allegations, the company and Bill O'Reilly have agreed that Bill O'Reilly will not be returning to the Fox News channel. Of course, this comes after the revelation earlier this month that O'Reilly and 21st Century Fox had paid out $13 million in settlements to five women who had accused him of sexual harassment and or verbal abuse. If anyone listening does not know, can you sort of fill us in about who he is and what happened? So Bill O'Reilly, for a very long time, was the number one uh, cable news commentator in America. Um, he really drove conversation for uh, large parts of the country. Uh, and he was the star of Fox News, which was the number one cable news network in America. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch, who uh, also has a press empire in the UK and is has a very uh, explicitly conservative uh, viewpoint on everything. And O'Reilly was sort of their star and the one who packaged their message a lot and was very instrumental in selling certain narratives. Um, there's one of the reports about Fox in the past few years has been that their mandate uh, post 9-11 was to sell the war in Iraq to the American right. public. Uh, they have been really supportive of President Trump. They're his favorite network. Um, But there's also increasingly over the years been reports that their workplace culture is extremely hostile towards women. Uh, The longtime CEO, Roger Ailes, was ousted uh, last year um, amid allegations that he essentially required women to sleep with him in order to advance their careers and that he pressured them into performing sadomasochistic sex acts. Um, One woman alleged that he essentially drove her into a nervous breakdown over the course of their relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Bill O'Reilly was a big champion of Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes was a big champion of O'Reilly. And Bill, and it recently came out, I think at the beginning of April, there was a New York Times article uh, reporting that O'Reilly had actually been been uh, the recipient of several complaints of sexual harassment from his own employees. Um, they uncovered five complaints that Fox News had settled for a total of $13 million. Wow. And Fox News has actually weathered this kind of scandal a fair amount before. Um, and usually they just kind of press on and ignore it and throw money at it and it goes away eventually. Uh, but in this case, there was a strong grassroots movement from progressive and liberal groups who put an enormous amount of pressure on O'Reilly's advertisers. So normally he is able to show about 40 ads per show. And because his ratings are so high, the revenue that that generates is pretty enormous. Uh, but in this case, advertisers started dropping like flies at the end of it there was he was showing maybe seven ads per show Mm -hmm. um and eventually fox decided that they couldn't keep him around so 
they pushed him to resign. Um, as part of that, they ended up paying him $25 million. So he's coming out of this pr- with a pretty sweet deal, but right, he's right. never on Fox News. But were you surprised considering he was sort of the face of Fox News, the star that they actually did uh, sort of, even though he did get this huge payout. So, I mean, in that sense, but that they did actually go all the way that he had to resign. Um, yes and no. This, I don't think he would have resigned in the Roger Ailes era, but once Ailes had been ousted, I think Fox recognizes, especially the, the younger Murdoch brothers who mm-hmm. are now uh, running the network in partnership with their father, I think they've recognized that they have a big PR problem when it comes to women and that they will eventually lose money if they don't at least appear to address it superficial, however superficially they may do it. Um, reports from Fox right now are indicating that there haven't been major cultural changes within the company, but they are at least giving the appearance of caring about it. But talking about in in other terms, where where it seems to be going slightly better for us women, perhaps is I see there seems to be a lot of female fueled drama um, from Handmaid's Tale to Big Little Lies to Feud that's come out this season with some very interesting topics, polarizing topics, but also about you know aging in Hollywood and 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 um, do you see any reason for that? Um, I think that. Every so often, people try to convince Hollywood and the the TV and film industries that women actually do make up the majority of the global population, and they actually do watch more TV and movies <laughs> than men do, um, and that it would be good to make movies and te- television specifically for them. Um, and the movie industry is very, very skeptical about that idea. But TV has started to get kind of into it. Um, I think partially that's a result of the death of the middle budget Hollywood movie and the sort of exodus of a lot of the vaguely literary middle brow uh, work that would have been movies 10, 20 years ago headed towards TV like Big Little Lies and The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also there's been a growing push uh, among women in the industry to try to raise a conversation about that. You know, Gina Davis has her Gina Davis Foundation, which funds research uh, dedicated to promote, to studying the uh, portrayal of women in entertainment and promoting better roles for them. A lot of female celebrities like Jessica Chastain and Meryl Streep have been using their platforms to talk very loudly about how, about the the limitations of the roles available to them and how they want better. Um, And then you have someone like Reese Witherspoon who's starting, who reacted by starting her own production company and optioning the roles that she wanted for herself, like Wild or... uh, what was the, oh, she optioned Gone Girl and she was thinking about playing that role herself until mm-hmm. she gave it to Rosamund Pike. Um, so I think it's a big combination of factors, but probably the most important thing is that a lot of famous and powerful women are in a, putting themselves in a position to create their own roles. Well, I'm so happy to see that that's paying off because, it's, you know, one talks about that, you know, activism and spreading one, but, but there's, there actually seems to be a, a concrete change. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Do you know how these shows 
can you say how these shows have been there? I mean, from my perspective, there seems to be a huge reception for like Big Little Lies and and there's lots Mm -hmm. of talk about these shows. Would you say that they are uh, making an impact? I think they're definitely making an impact in the cultural conversation. Um, But you, but it often happens that shows that critics like a lot and talk about a lot on Twitter and that you see the media people really excited about um, don't have very high ratings. You know, Girls was like an avatar for every single cultural conversation in its entire run. And I think it averaged less than a million viewers an episode. Um, So oftentimes these shows that have enormous cultural impact have a very, very small viewership. It's just a passionate viewership. Right. Would you say that there's been, um, it's been good for diversity as well? Not just for women, but in, in other? Yeah, I think there's definitely... In fact, probably in part as a result of the the conversation around girls, um, shows have definitely become more aware of the question of diversity. I think that's been really fun to see in uh, The Handmaid's Tale. In the in the book, there are no people of color in the car- in the cast at all because they've all been carted off to labor camps. Um, and also, it was written in 1983, and people weren't talking about that as much at that point. Right. Um, but the TV show made the choice to drop that piece of the mythology and put a number of people of color in the cast, and to make uh, the main characters sin her violation of the religious purity laws, not that she was part of a second marriage, but that she was part of an interracial marriage, uh, which adds a lot of layers about the way America thinks about race and is also just a good way of getting more great actors of color who don't get have the opportunities to get cast as often into the show. And I think Samira Wiley is doing such great things on that show and it's so fun to watch her. But how do they sort of, if that was a big question in, in the book in terms of that um, people of color and such were actually banished, how do they you know, translate that into this version? So we don't know exactly what's happened to all of the people of color in Gilead at this point in the show. Um, I think we've seen some women of color among the handmaids, but we haven't seen them among any of the other social castes. Uh, So the implication thus far is that they're willing to take fertile women of color because their fertility problem is that bad. Uh, But we don't know what's happened to the rest of them. Okay, so that might be how they sort of solve it, that fertility is a bigger issue than sort of racism racism right right now. Yeah. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! No, please, please don't take her. You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. Um, one of the things I was wondering about was was a uh, piece. I mean, you've written about and others written about is the fact that the cast and crew and people involved in Handmaid, when they're doing out, they've been out on press tour. They haven't wanted to call it a feminist show. Mm-hmm. Why do you think? And what? How have they dealt with that? Um, 
So this is something that um, I think Elizabeth Moss, who's the star of Handmaid's Tale, has historically been a little reluctant to talk about. Um, she was also Peggy on Mad Men, of course, and that's a character that's beloved by a lot of feminists and thought of as having a very feminist journey. And she'll often say things like, but I wasn't playing her as a feminist. I was just playing her as a human being. Um, I sort of have the sense that because the the response from the Handmaid's Tale cast has been so uniform on this talking point that it was probably uh, suggested to them by a, someone who's working on publicity within the show that they keep calling it a human show rather than a feminist show um, in order to keep from alienating uh, non-feminist viewership. I think that's a mistake, personally. Um, yeah, it sort I of think... defeats the purpose of the whole show, which is about, you know, just that and then not being able to say it is the whole point of of the book. I mean, it, it, it it's a strange, I mean, they could find another way to sell it for those who are not interested in women-centric shows. <laughs> it really is. And I think also we've just seen a period of pop culture when it's actually been very valuable for a lot of of figures to align themselves with feminism. You know, you have Beyonce performing at the Grammys in front of a giant glowing sign that right. says feminist, you know, and she's the biggest star in the country. I think uh, also, I mean, there has been an issue with Margaret Atwood herself, who who wrote the book on which the TV show Handmaid's Tale is, uh, is based, has been reluctant to align herself with feminism just because she gets very leery about genre categories. She'll also try to avoid thinking of herself as a writer of science fiction because she wants to be the person who defines the categories and sets the boundaries, and she doesn't want to let anyone else do that for her. So Handmaid's Tale is like weirdly an avatar for this question in general. Um, and one of the results of that that I was a little bit shocked by is that there's apparently a reading of it that's not uncommon uh, that the problem with the with Gilead in the world of Handmaid's Tale is not that it's a patriarchal society, but that it's run by women. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a syllabus going around that uh, where the, the summary of Handmaid's Tale that's listed there is a nightmare vision of a world run by women. And I think the, the reading is that the ants who uh, train the handmaids and oh, indoctrinate they them, that they run the show, even though that's clearly not the case in right. the book. The ants are subordinate to the male commanders. Um, but that's like, a, I think the idea of avoiding associating the book explicitly and the, now the TV show explicitly with feminism has sort of led to that prevalent misreading. And I think that's a big mistake on everyone, on the part of everyone involved. I think so too. Do you think, I mean, people have written, you've written about this, others have written that perhaps they will sort of see that in coming. I just saw that it, there's a season two coming out uh, or they just got the green light for season two that maybe that this will be something they'll realize that they didn't need to do this to get the audience. I mean, I would certainly hope so, um, but I think it often happens that executives, once they have a received wisdom in their mind, sort of stick to their guns. Um, like, there's ever since uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman movie flopped, uh, executives have used that as the rationale for why they can't make a female superhero movie because audiences just don't go to see them, uh, even though it's been 
quite a number of years since then and there are a lot of other data points that you could be using right right so uh well hopefully that'll change um switching gears to another controversy that's really playing out right now it's netflix 13 reasons why mm. which is a show about a young girl who's who kills herself and sort of what happens after that hey it's hannah hannah baker Holy shit. Settle in, because I'm about to tell you the story of my life. More specifically, why my life ended. And if you're listening to this tape, you're one of the reasons why. Everyone is just so nice until they drive you to kill yourself. And sooner or later, the truth will come out. There's been some talk about this glorifying suicide and that it could lead to increased um, copycat behavior. And many even celebrities have have sort of said that there's uh, triggers in this and that we should be careful about the show. What what are your thoughts about this? So what's interesting to me about this controversy is that the you can very clear you can make a pretty good argument on aesthetic grounds for showing the the suicide in the show in graphic detail. Um, it is a very very graphic scene. You see the character slitting her wrists in close up. You see the blood. You see the pain that she's in. It's very upsetting to watch. Um, and artistically, that kind of makes sense as a way of moving away from this idea of suicide as a peaceful escape from the pain of life. Um, it's kind of a repudiation of that those pre-Raphaelite images of, you know, Ophelia floating in the river with flowers in her hair, looking very beautiful right. as a corpse. Um, and this scene is sort of explicitly saying, no, that's not what happens. Suicide is actually really, really painful and unpleasant and violent and horrible. And I think artistically that makes a lot of sense and is interesting. But when you look at the numbers, this is something that's been studied in peer reviews, scientific studies quite a bit. And when you look at the numbers, it shows that graphic depictions of suicide actually do lead to more suicide attempts. Which is counterintuitive because you, as a maker of art, you think that you're demonstrating that this is bad and wrong and that that's what your audience should get from it. But it turns out that a lot of people who are struggling with suicidal ideation don't get that message. And in fact, what they get is essentially an instruction manual on how they might go about killing themselves should they choose to. Do you think that, I mean, and when you've been following this, is there any reason? Um, I mean, I'm from the generation where all the parents were worried about Heathers. <laughs> um, I mean, is there any reason why you think Netflix should do something or, or put disclaimers on the show? Or, or, or is there any reason to be sort of cautious about this? I think there's absolutely a reason to be cautious about it. I understand the artistic impulse behind it, but I mean, the numbers don't lie. This is something that can actually lead to people's death. Um, and I don't, I mean, I am in general in favor of art being brave and showing everything that it can, but this is an issue that's actually been scientifically studied and it, it's found been found to be very destructive. Um, so I think that putting up warnings and, and using this show as 
an opportunity to have a conversation about about suicide and putting it in context is really, really important. Because this show is particularly geared towards a younger sort of teen audience. I mean, there's lots of mm-hmm. movies about graphic suicide and such, but this is really a school setting about bullying, about, um, you know, sort of appearance and all that. So, so that's what one is worried about, sort of the younger. The younger. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's very, very popular among middle school and high school students right now. Um, and some schools have reacted to that by actually banning discussion of the show on campus, which I think is probably not a, a constructive response. It's probably just going to make the show more exciting and kids will watch it anyway. It's probably better to talk about it. but Yeah, yeah. If, if people are going to watch it, so use the opportunity to have a conversation. But I do think there's... A, it's reasonable to ask whether it was the right decision to make such a graphic and violent scene in the first place against the uh, advice of a lot of suicide prevention specialists who were consulted. Right. Has Netflix done anything to date? Uh, Netflix has added uh, additional trigger warnings to the beginning of the show, of the show and to the, the more graphic episodes. Um, and they also, with the show released uh, a little self-help special called Beyond the Reasons that talks about the role of depression in suicide attempts and uh, and gives some resources for how teens can can reach for suicide hotlines and places to reach out to if you're feeling depressed or suicidal. Right, right. Um, can I ask you, do you a little bit about late night? Mm-hmm. I was sort of wondering these first hundred days of Trump, back to that again, um, how do you see the current late night hosts handling post-election and now in this new administration? What are your thoughts on who's on top there? Well, this is something that uh, my colleague Caroline Franke has written about really beautifully. What she's argued and what I agree with is that this is a time when comics like Stephen Colbert and... Uh, Seth Meyers, who have a political satire background, are really, really shining. They're letting themselves be angry and and getting their, a little bit vicious in their comedy. And it's very cathartic to watch. And uh, and there and it's just leading to really good, smart coverage. This is an issue where it's also a case where a comic like Jimmy Fallon who's a little bit more uh, avuncular, I guess, in his comedy. He's, his shtick is kind of like, we'll bring on celebrities and do a party game. Right. And he just sort of wants everyone to be friends. Um, and it's, a, it's an environment where his comedy is, I think, a little less, feeling a little less urgent um, and compelling. He was pretty roundly criticized during the campaign season for uh, having Trump on his show and just making like jokes about his hair and right, ruffling right. his head. Um, and post-election, his Trump material has mostly been like tiny hand jokes and that's it. Um, and I think in general, his, his, he's become a lot less uh, central to the cultural conversation. So people really want someone to take a stand. I mean, yeah, this is a historically unpopular president. Um, and I think people have reacted very well to the late night's uh, tendency to paint itself as the forefront of the resistance, whether that uh, claim is earned or not. People like to feel as though they're they're reacting against Trump. 
Right. Did you see Jimmy Kimmel's very yeah, sweet very, and, very moving. and very moving? Yeah, about his son who had uh, uh, was born with a with a heart condition and and was saved at the hospital. And what were the reactions to that? Because he actually talked uh, about the about Trump and Affordable Care Act and how we should all babies should have a chance to live or get medical care irregardless of economic. Yeah, yeah. So Jimmy Kimmel made this very uh, emotional argument that all de- all decent people want all the babies to live regardless of their parents' ability to pay for health care, um, which was pr- mostly pretty well received. But uh, there was a fairly angry response in uh, the Washington Times, this conservative news outlet uh, that was getting passed around a fair amount yesterday that was headlined something like Jimmy Kimmel is why real Americans hate Hollywood um, and sort of pilloried him for taking this issue of his child's health and turning it into what the columnists referred to as um, an excuse to talk dirty partisan politics. Um, So I think in general, the response to the speech has been, well, it's great that his baby is safe and he does have a point, you know, everyone's baby should have access to healthcare, uh, but there has been, in some cases, a feeling that um, he shouldn't turn his personal tragedy into grist for the political mill. And But that's coming mainly from sort of... Fox, yeah, from yeah. people who have a vested interest already in not expanding healthcare coverage. Let's stop with the nonsense. This isn't football. There are no teams. We are the team. It's the United States. Don't let their partisan squabbles divide us on something every decent person wants. We need to take care of each other. I saw a lot of families there, and no parent should ever have to decide if they can afford to save their child's life. It it just shouldn't happen. Not here. So, uh, anyway... Thank you for listening. I promise I'm not going to cry for the rest of the show. <laughs> Please say a prayer uh, for or send positive thoughts to the families with children who are still in the hospital now because they need it. And um, thanks. We have a special show tonight. Uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Ross. Who are you watching on late? Who do you think is the most interesting for you? Oh, well, I watch all of the late night um, in case I have to cover any of it. Uh, but, uh, the ones that I enjoy most tend to be the Colbert, the Seth Meyer, the Sam B, um, people who are doing smart, interesting, contempt, uh, politically charged comedy. I will say I also enjoy the occasional James Corden getting a celebrity to sing, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's always just fun to watch. That's interesting because he's also, like in the case you were saying about Fallon, he does more light, non-political. But is that because he's sort of British that he gets away with, with not being the resistance? In part, yes. I think also he's never attempted to engage in politics much at all. He'll occasionally say things like, this mass shooting was bad and we'll all stand together against it. Um, But Jimmy Fallon, I think, ended up inserting himself in the political conversation in a way he may not have anticipated when he hosted Trump. Um, And And he was also on SNL. I mean, he was, although he didn't. Yeah, he was 
he did more of the sketch comedy, whereas Seth Meyers was doing the weekend update news parody stuff. Uh, so they were in different parts of the of the field there. But yeah, he does come from SNL. Right. But um, yeah, and, and just finally, because I've taken up a lot of your time here, but what, what um, are there shows coming up right now that, you, that you're really waiting for, or books or anything in pop that, that you feel is, yes, this is going to be super interesting. I can't wait for that. Oh, gosh, sure. Um, well, in the next week, uh, Netflix is going to be doing an adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. So I don't know um, if Anne of Green Gables is, is a big, iconic thing where you are. Um, but in North America, it's very, very popular. It's a Canadian series of books about this spunky, redheaded orphan girl. Uh, it was written in, I think, the 1890s. Um, and it's sort of this iconic children's collection about, you know, the power of imagination and believing in yourself. Um, and it, the Netflix series is being run by a former Breaking Bad television writer. She wrote um, the famous Breaking Bad episode, Ozymandias, mm, which is kind is, of yeah, famous. Yeah. It's kind of harrowing. Um, and she's been talking about Anna Green Gables as an opportunity to delve into the the anti-heroine aspect of Anne. She's going to look at her traumatic past and give her PTSD, um, which is a very, very counterintuitive approach to such a, a sweet, warm, charming series of books. Wow, and I'm no, really, I can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really interested to see what that's going to look like. Um, I'm also very much looking forward to, I don't know if it's going to come out this year, um, because it was the it was just announced a few months ago, but uh, Lev Grossman, who is the author of the Magician series of books, mm -hmm. um, has announced that he's writing a book about King Arthur. It's going to be sort of to, this book will be to the Once and Future King as the Magician's books were to Narnia. And I think the way that he does very literary deconstructions of these beloved fantasy tropes is totally fascinating and once in future king is a favorite of mine so i'm really looking forward to seeing what he does there okay both of those sound really interesting um constance thank you so much for taking your time thank you for having me Thank you so much to Constance Grady. You can read her great pieces on Vox.com and follow her on Twitter at Constance Grady. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Remember to leave us feedback, and if you have a minute, please rate the show on iTunes, for example. And you can find us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. See you next week. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast. That's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, 
physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.